So here we are in Matthew 2, and we know that Jesus' coming into the world is peace on earth, goodwill to men, and we're thankful for that, but that's not all that's going on at this time. Sending the Son of God into this world was a very dangerous thing to do. And the Father knew he's sending his Son right into the power of his enemies. They will want to kill him. So as we go through Matthew chapter 2, we're looking at how God knew they were coming centuries before they thought of it. And how he is well able to protect those who are his and to accomplish his will. And at the same time as we're looking at this, we also get to look at these guys, the Magi, and think about how amazing it is that when they receive some kind of revelation from God, they respond to it and receive more from God. So on the one hand, he's protecting from danger, the Lord is. On the other hand, he's drawing people close to him. So, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. We'll just stop there. I look at these magi and I think, what a unique work of God they are. Now, everybody knows that magi... It doesn't use the word magi there, does it? It uses wise men. See, the translation I study with uses the word magi. And magi is plural of magus. Magi were a priestly group found in ancient nations like Persia, India. They studied the stars 
to find the wisdom to direct affairs on earth. They were counselors to kings and rulers. Now, God evidently revealed himself to this group of men. Tradition has three. Tradition even has their names. Tradition is unfounded. Doesn't say how many wise men. Doesn't tell us their names. It's a group of men. It doesn't even say how God revealed himself to them, which is really interesting. You know, Daniel had been in Persia, Babylon, kingdom of the Medes and Persians. He had the scriptures. It could have been that later on, some of these magi, wise men, picked up the scriptures, began reading them, saw prophecies in numbers about a star will arise. Don't know. Did God give them dreams? He does that. He, even in this chapter, he's giving them dreams. So we don't know. But somehow they notice this star. And we see later that this is a star that moves. So it's not quite accurately saying a star, but it's some kind of phenomenon in the heavens. And they notice it. And it's different. And somehow they get the idea, this is from God. This means that the king of the Jews, the Messiah, has been born. Okay, somehow God communicated to them the meaning of this light in the heavens. And evidently, that's all they knew. Now, what they did was they responded to the light they were given. So what do you do when God shows you something? He reveals something to you. What do you do with that? And the answer is, when he shows you something, it's so that you can respond to it, and he will give you more. That's a principle. Like, when Jesus was born, on that night, God sends angels to tell these shepherds. And they appear and they say, this night is born to you a Savior, Christ the Lord. And then the angels go and the shepherds look at each other and say, let's go see. That's why God told them. Now they could have said, you know, it's a lot of effort. We're not up for this. It's just stay here. It's warm. Stay close to the sheep, you know, hot water bottle, and let's not go anywhere. That would have been it. But instead they said, let's go see. So they went and saw, and they got to see the Messiah on day one because it was exactly as the angel told them and they go, wow. 
Now, I don't think it took two years for the Magi to get to Jerusalem. I'm just guessing here, but it's not a two-year journey. That means they, they see the star, the heavenly phenomenon, and they figure out, this is that star. This means that the Messiah is born. And then they thought, okay, what do we do about this? And finally, one of them gets the idea. Let's go check this out. And they go, yeah, let's do it. Now that means taking a dangerous trip. It's always dangerous to travel. It's not like now when you go to church, you just jump in your car, take the M3, everything's cool. Back then, it's just like painting a big target and saying, rob me. So they have to figure out how to get from where they are, somewhere in the east. And then where do you go? See, they didn't know. Okay. Well, they decided to respond. They say, okay, let's go and worship him. Now, the principle is when God shows you something, it's for a reason. And when you respond to it, you get more. This is what happens. They go to Jerusalem. They didn't know exactly where to go. But they figured, why don't we go to the center of the worship of God on the planet? If he's the king of the Jews, let's go to the land of the Jews, to the capital, and they're probably way ahead of us. They can show us where to go. All right, so that's a fair idea. Doesn't it make sense? So I'm just imagining they have a high status. They're magi. They're practically ambassadors. So they would come into Jerusalem as maybe a foreign diplomatic sort of a thing, and they wouldn't just stop at McDonald's. They would go straight to Herod and have a few diplomatic pleasantries like we come from the Far East. Oh, that's very nice. We're, we're honored to have you. Yes, and we are honored to be here. And they get done with all that, and they say, okay, we've come because we saw the star of the king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him. So can you direct us to him? And that's when they find out nobody knows what they're talking about. And they go, king of the Jews. Huh. Isn't that interesting? Uh... And in fact, there's no warm sort of a, really? It's more like a, what do you mean? Explain yourself. Why? Because Herod is troubled. That's a word that kind of compresses a lot of meaning, kind of like fearful, anxious, apprehensive. The future just got scary. Because for 37 years, he has been king of the Jews. What do you mean there's a king of the Jews? At me. I'm king of the Jews. So 
He's thinking some hayseed out there thinks he's the Messiah and wants to boot me. Now, he got in good with Caesar Augustus. And that's how he became king of the Jews, because he just came. He'd been supporting Antony in the wars, and Augustus won. So he went to Augustus and just laid it all out, just said, hey, I know I've been working for Antony, and Antony lost, and that's fair enough, but I want to let you know, here I am, I'm for you. And Augustus said, fine. And it worked out that he became, he made Herod king of Judea. So through scheming and a few murders along the way, Herod has been king of the Jews for 37 years. And Herod's paranoid about ever being deposed. By this time, he's already murdered two of his sons and his favorite wife because he suspected them of intriguing against him. And Augustus's little joke was, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because Herod kept kosher. He was trying to impress the Jews with, hey, you know, I'm, I, I'm with you. He was half Edomite and half Jewish. They just kind of said, no, thank you. But he's saying, look, I'm, I'm with you guys. He kept kosher. So Augustus said, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. That's why all Jerusalem is troubled. Because if Herod is paranoid, he will do anything. And nobody is safe. Does everybody get that? Herod was troubled. So was all Jerusalem. So what he does, Herod, is he takes steps to safeguard himself and oppose this danger of another king, even if it's the Messiah. Can you imagine? He knows what the phrase king of the Jews means. He says, nobody is taking my throne. Nobody. So there in verse 4, he calls the chief priests and scribes together, and he says, where is the Christ supposed to be born? And they just say, yeah, Bethlehem. It has to be Bethlehem. So then he calls a secret meeting with the Magi. Isn't that interesting? Secret. Just him and them. And he says, guys, I know where you need to go. Bethlehem. I have it on good authority. This is the place. So you go there. Just got a little favor. You make sure. And when you find him, I want you to come back and let me know. So I can worship him too. You can do that for me, guys. And this is a secret. Because Herod doesn't want to make a big deal about this. He just wants them to kind of quietly fade out, do their little thing, send back word because he wants to kill this baby. And he figures it's probably not cool to kill the Messiah. 
So let's not broadcast what we're doing here. Let's just keep it nice and quiet and mellow and just shh, just do your thing. Let me know. And then I'll squish him. So I guess we're up to verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these magi, they depart from the king. And who knows what they're thinking here? Because maybe they thought, gosh, we're going to show up in Jerusalem and everybody's going to be excited already. And then the reaction was kind of like, what? 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 Can you explain yourself? And they're thinking, this is weird. Weird, weird, weird. These guys don't care. Nobody is making a move to check this out. Herod's getting rid of us secretly. So it was a weird reception in Jerusalem. But then they see this star. They saw this star in the east, and it went before them. And they rejoice exceedingly. Can you imagine? Because they go, look, there it is. And can you imagine rejoicing over a star? Look. It's a star. It's a star. Yeah. But that's what they're doing. How could a star inspire this kind of like, but you got to remember, this is the end of two years of observing that star, realizing the significance, making a dangerous journey, a weird reception in Jerusalem, and they're going to Bethlehem, and then they see the star, and then they know this is God. God is going to get us there. That means there's a get to get. I didn't say that quite right, but there is an end to this. We are going to see the king of the Jews, and they know that before they get there. They're rejoicing because God himself is making sure that they get there. He means for them to find him. Can you imagine after two years thinking, this is it. We're here. Everything they've experienced is about to be fulfilled. So they come into the house and they worship They bow down before this child. Now, these guys are old, mature, experienced. They're used to operating at this kind of a level. They deal with kings, rulers, different nations. 
they're really men of stature and they get down and they bow low before a two-year-old baby boy. Can you think in your mind, baby boy? I've seen a couple lately. My brother has his grandchildren there. You know, they can barely talk and they're moving around like little pudgy doughboys, you know. But these men with beards are bowing down to a two-year-old boy. And the two-year-old boy is receiving worship. Now listen, you're only supposed to worship God. And these men are acknowledging that this two-year-old is the creator of the universe and the judge of all spirits. They're saying that he's God. That's what you do in the presence of God. And then they present gifts to him. Now this is where they get that there's three magi. But it doesn't mean that there's three. It means they had three gifts. They give him gold. That's valuable. And they also give him frankincense and myrrh. And these are aromatic and they're precious. And people have sort of made up this thing like gold means that he's God. Frankincense is like prayer. And the myrrh was for embalming. So they think about his life and his death all encompassed in these gifts. But I don't think so. Because we're not told that. But think about this for a second. Why do you give a gift to God? You ever wondered about that? Like, why do we take offerings? It's weird in a lot of people's minds because people know God doesn't need money. And this is a lousy business if you try to make money. What does God need from somebody that he needs money for? It's ridiculous, isn't it? God makes whatever he wants. He is blessed within himself. He doesn't need to buy anything from anybody, and yet we give him gifts. Why is that? There's an, sort of this question brought up in Psalm 116, verse 12, where the psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? He's talking about being saved from death. Would you be thankful to God if God saved you from death? What do you give to God because he saved you? This is a real question. And the answer is, the only valuable thing you have is your life. And when a life is yielded and given to God, that is valuable in the sight of God. More than money. 
more than anything. The only valuable thing we own is our life. Does everybody get that? Because if, if you know, you give God money and, and treasures and all that kind of stuff, God says, okay, well, that's interesting. But when we give our lives, our souls, our hearts, and say, I will make my boast in the Lord, then we become valuable to God. It says in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And it doesn't mean that when somebody dies, God goes, ha. What it means is, when a godly one, one that has received the love of God, offers up his life to God, that is costly and precious and valuable. And that kind of an offering is a sweet smell. Another aspect of offering is that offering represents me. Now, I know that all those offerings represent the Messiah in some way. But in another way, they represent me. So here is my valuable life being offered to God. Here is that sweet smell of my obedience. That's what they're offering up right now. Now, think about where they started two years ago. They're guys who look through the heavens and they give advice to the counselors and they go, who knows? Who knows if this stuff we're giving out is really the real deal? And they have a suspicion sometimes that it's not, but it's what I do. Then they see this star. Then they get the significance of it from God and they think, wow, we have to follow up on this. God, if you're there, help us. And God gets them there. And now they're in his very presence. And they're offering up their lives to him. And their lives have become a valuable sweet-smelling aroma to God, and they know this. So here's the principle. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. They responded to that little bit of light, and God gave them more and more and more. And here they are, right in his presence. Now, God also shows that he's well able to protect his people and fulfill his will. Verse 12, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, 
and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. He came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So look what God does. First of all, he protects the Magi. They're going to go back home, and he warns them in a dream. Don't go to Herod. Don't fuss with him. And you know, they're used to following God's leading at this point. They're they're convinced. Anything God says to do, I will do. So when they, he says, don't fuss with Herod, they go, great. I mean, who needs Herod when you've seen Jesus, right? And the very night that the Magi leave, an angel warns Joseph in a dream, go to Egypt right now. Herod's going to look for the child to kill him. And so that night, Joseph wakes everybody up and says, we got to leave right now this second. We're not going to leave news for anybody. We're just going to fade right out and go to Egypt. So nobody sees them go. Nobody knows what they're up to. Nobody can tell Herod anything. And Herod is enraged. I mean, this is Herod at his absolute worst. He was afraid it might be true that the king of the Jews maybe has been born. But then the Magi don't show up. And maybe somehow he gets word they went back some other way. He jumps to the conclusion, there must be something to this. They found him, and now they're playing me for a fool. Deceived, a better translation would be mocked. They're mocking me. And he cannot endure that. So now 
He comes right out into the open. He's striking blindly with all the information he's got to try to kill the Messiah. He's got to be two years old, but here it goes. Now we're going to make sure. Two years old and under. Not just Bethlehem, but even in the surrounding areas. We're going to blanket bomb this. We're going to wipe out any possibility and hope that we hit this. So, God deals with this. How does he deal with this? He lets Herod do what he wants. And then, verse 19, Herod died. He lets him live until he can't live anymore. He's dead. What about all those children that got killed? Well, he's standing before God now. Court's in session. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And those children will be avenged. And then, after Herod's death, God lets Joseph know. The coast is clear, you can come back now. And yet, when he gets back, he realizes Herod's son is reigning. That's not good. I don't like that. And God says, I don't like it either. I want you to go this way. And he ends up living in Nazareth, which is where God wants him to be because of this last prophecy. Now, what he's doing here, if you notice, God is fulfilling prophecy even at the same time he's protecting everybody. And what it shows is God knew centuries in advance what was going to happen. That is, he knew that Herod was going to kill or try to kill Jesus. So sending Joseph with the family down to Egypt was always part of God's plan because he had it written down through the prophet Hosea. So this is always part of God's plan. He knew that Herod would kill the innocent children in Bethlehem and the vicinity. He had it written down in Jeremiah 31. And then this last citation of the prophets there in verse 23. This was spoken by the prophets. It's kind of vague there. It's not any one particular thing, but it really refers to the direction and the arc of the prophecies about the Messiah, that the Messiah would be despised and rejected by men. Now, in Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the point is, that word branch there, it's not an exalted bough. It's a twig. It's a shoot. It's a... And a... Is not exalted. It's just this little thing. It's nothing to marvel at. Now, the word for branch is related etymologically to the name Nazareth. And God works it so Joseph ends up in Nazareth. And the point to Nazareth was it was 
not the best of places. It was kind of a dump. And a bunch of lowlifes lived there. Not a nice place. And, of course, Nathaniel calls it when he said, he's from Nazareth? <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because that was the reputation. And that was the public name Jesus was known by. He was known and crucified as Jesus of Nazareth. Not a good rep. So the point that of this last is that God worked it so that Jesus would be raised in a place that was kind of dodgy. Could anything good come out of that? It's part of the rejection and being despised by men. So even while God sends his son into danger, he knew about all of these things in advance and even wrote about it so that his will is fulfilled at every step. So here's what we get out of this. This first coming of Jesus into the world was a dangerous step. He was met with hostility and deadly force. And his second coming is going to be even more intense. All the governments of the earth are going to be opposing Jesus when he comes. And so we should not be surprised that governments are getting tougher right now. They're taking to themselves power that they haven't taken. This is unprecedented. Governments are becoming tyrannies. Well, you know, God wrote these things down thousands of years ago. And he is sending us the message. He knows what men will do. And he's well able to take care of his people. And you know, we're not supposed to live in fear of what the government will do. Like Jerusalem, wondering what is Herod going to do next? These people in Jerusalem, they knew nothing of the coming of the Messiah. And even when the Magi show up and go, where is he? He's been born. Nobody goes to check him out. It's like, do I want to do this? Well, what if I do this? What's Herod going to say? I don't want to be seen supporting some king of the Jews. Well, Herod, he could do anything. So, thank you, I'm just going to stay down and not do anything. But you know, the Magi, you know what's interesting? They're not from Jerusalem. They're not under Herod. They don't belong to the scene. They're strangers. And therefore, they go, well, I'm not under Herod. All I know is God has shown me something, and I'm responding to that. I'm here to seek what I have been shown. And I know that as I seek, I'm going to find. So when he helps me find him, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to offer myself to him.
And if there's trouble, then I can depend on Jesus to steer me out of that trouble. And he promised a long time ago that he would be my helper and that I don't have to be afraid. What can man do to me? So, has God shown himself to you? If he has, did you respond to him? This is the funny thing about being a Christian, is God does something, and then we respond, and then he does something more, and then we respond more. That's what it ought to be. But sometimes we can lose the plot and just like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. And so these are reminders just to say, this is what it's about. You know, if you act on what God shows you, he'll show you more and more and more. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to take care of your people, to write about it thousands of years before so we don't have to be surprised. Thank you also, Lord, that you keep showing us things. You want us to know you better. You want us to be free from fear, founded on the truth. So, we want to respond to you. Even if we're not feeling 100% or feel like we can't do this, surely you will help us. And we trust in you to get us where we need to be. So, we commit ourselves into your hand and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.